Announcement. Um, next weekend, Bunte uh, Sukajito and Janet Suri. Bunte is here. Would you like to stand up, Bunte, so people can see you? He will be leading a day-long retreat with Janet Suri. And both of these are friends of mine who are wonderful insight dialogue teachers. It's Cultivating Spiritual Friendship. It's a day of insight dialogue. And that's next weekend. And it's a Donna-only event, which is awesome. So please feel enthusiastic to look at these flyers and to pick one up and more importantly to come. So I want to begin the talk today by just um, saying, you know, in the, the point of the Buddha's teachings, the point of our lives, if you, if you, if you choose to believe this, is to be happy. You know? Isn't that a novel idea? <laughs> and we have lots of opportunities not to be happy. And in our contemporary world, with some of the things that are going on, it's actually quite a challenge sometimes to be happy. And um, it was mentioned that I was a monastic for a very long time, and that life has been a huge blessing and a support for deepening meditation practice. And I feel tremendously grateful for those years. There's a, a level of... Uh, depth that one can go in the meditation practice in monastic like every year we had a three-month retreat every summer we had a month of solitary retreat it's not that often that that can be organized you know so i have a great sense of uh, the wealth and the the riches of that and life happens and i chose to relinquish the monastic life and i had my reasons for it and part of the reasons why was because my own life energy was pulled back and for me alongside my aspiration to awaken i had the aspiration for aliveness and wholeness and at a point it came the realization that the monastic life a renunciant form was not serving that those two aspirations, aliveness, wholeness, and awakening. So I relinquished the monastic robes, and a few months later, we had the fires in Santa Rosa. And so I got impacted by that, and my health was very strongly impacted by that. And so uh, this last year has been navigating health impact from all of that. And so one of the things that I have done in helping my health was be involved with a neuroplasticity program. So the Dynamic Neural Retraining System was a program that Annie Hopper created, and it's an amazing program that combines a bunch of different modalities to help us rewire our brains. And it has been hugely helpful for myself and for all of my, my buddies who are in this program. All of us have got all kinds of weird stuff that's going on with our health. So because this is alive for me, and because it might be alive for other people, that it is uh, that the stuff that we're navigating is not so easy to deal with just only with meditation, I thought I would put together a talk where we look at the combination of Buddhist meditation practices and neuroplasticity for rewiring joy. And the day-long retreat that the flyer is about 
is a day long on the same topic to actually go into these practices with more depth so that we can actually get a feeling for what it is like to work with this. And I ended the meditation early because I want to do another meditation with you at the end, which is a, one of a favorite kind of meditation of mine to, to kind of wrap this whole conversation up. So this is like only the second time in my life I've done a PowerPoint presentation. So the widgets and the gidgets and everything, pardon me if I if I'm a little bit awkward, it's because I am. <laughs> so here we have the, um, a picture of brain waves coming out of a brain. And I wanted to talk about this interface between neuroplasticity and the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha's teaching is to, is to point, it's, it's intending to bring us towards greater clarity, ease, and well-being. It's intending to let us, support us to let go of what isn't skillful, to move towards what is skillful. And that includes our habits of body, speech, and mind, which are conditioned by ignorance. So, you know, everything that we do, you know, the things that we think and the things that we feel and the things that are habitual, there's a way in which there's this nexus of how this stuff happens. And it's often the case that our habits have a taint of ignorance in them. So the path for the Buddhist path of awakening is both gradual and imminent. So here we have a picture. This is a picture of um, the path up to Pike's Peak. I've been on this path. It's a totally awesome path. And it is steep like that. It's incredible. So the gradual and the progressive path of awakening, the attributes of the gradual path is to develop a container so that we have a sense of integrity. We are cultivating generosity. We have community that we can practice with, that we can be mirrored by and have a sense of reflection from. This path utilizes the focus of mind and meditation and creates greater clarity, ease, and well-being. It supports us to let go of what isn't skillful by helping us to align with refuge, to develop the muscles of the mind, and to develop qualities of the heart, qualities like love or compassion or joy, forgiveness, gratitude, equanimity. And so when we develop these qualities, when we develop the muscles of our mind, just like, you know, people use this particular path, this incline path, to train their leg muscles, and they run up this thing. I can't believe it, but they do. I mean, it's just incredible. And when they do, they're athletically fit they've got a really good way of working with their bodies. And they just say, let's go up the incline and their bodies go. I was on the incline and my body didn't go quite so (laughs) so fast. I had to stop and pause and rest because the steps are, are, some of the steps are this big and it goes from six and a half thousand feet to like, I don't know, 10,000 feet or 12,000 feet in, in a very short amount of time. So it's a huge altitude gain. 
So when we develop muscles of our mind, then we can make choices and allow our attention to focus where we want. And that is hugely supportive. It helps us dis- develop discernment. And so the discernment that we can use in our meditation practice is often supported with learning how to pay attention to the body, understanding the qualities of the pleasant and unpleasant things that we feel, and noticing them, and watching what's going on in our minds. So that we can notice if what's happening is something that's skillful or whether it's not. And then, and then turn our attention towards something that is skillful. And so the foundations of mindfulness is, a, is the classic way of training ourselves so that we can work with these different ways of perceiving experience to know what's happening in our body, to know what's happening in our heart and in our mind, and to use particular teachings and themes to help us have frames of reference around some of the stuff that we're experiencing so that it begins to have some more space, we begin to have more choice, we begin to have more sense of, of agency in what we're experiencing rather than feeling like it's happening to us and we don't have any choice. So the gradual path and the progressive path of awakening is is sequential. We start and we follow through and we move through time and it takes persistence and effort. And, you know... And that's the nature of the way it is. And so for that reason, it's really phenomenally helpful to have communities like this and practice centers like this where there are ongoing teachings and retreats and ways of plugging in. It's just a phenomenal resource. But there's also the imminent path of awakening. And the imminent path of awakening is not time-bound. It's not defined by time. It's timeless, and it's ever-present, and it has many different facets and attributes to it. And it's beyond duality. So one of the quotes that Ajahn Chah used that I loved was, if you let go a little, you'll have a little bit of peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So the imminent path of awakening is really the description of what happens when you let go completely. It's that radiance, the luminous nature of the mind that you can touch into which is not dependent on things around being a particular way. And it's always here. It doesn't go anywhere. It wasn't created and therefore it cannot be destroyed. And oftentimes we think that if we just 
plug in and do the work and eventually, 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 we'll have a little bit of peace. And for many of us, that is our experience, is that it does take a lot of effort. But when we hold that as a view, we forget that what is timeless and ever-present is actually right here and now. And that we can touch that at any point. So when we experience that or touch that, when we know that, when we have a sense or have a flavor of this, the qualities or the characteristics of it is that it has the taste of freedom. It has the quality of peace. And it gives us an experience of security that is altogether different than the kinds of securities that we feel in the world when things are so oscillating and changing and ephemeral and unstable. Because it touches into who and what we are when everything falls away. And when we know that, when we sense that, when we feel that, there's this resounding sense of, I'll be okay no matter what. Even when it's not okay, I'll be okay. So neuroplasticity. Okay, so it used to be back in the days of the dinosaur when I was born. (laughs) That The ideas were that when we were born, our brains were kind of like fixed, okay? And that we had a certain amount of neurosynapses and neurons, and once they were, we were born, they didn't grow, they didn't change, and they couldn't regenerate. And we have since learned that that's not true. And there's all kinds of information that's out right now that talks about the, the plasticity of the brain, the, the, the way in which it does change. And I remember when I went to UC Santa Cruz, it was 1979, and one of my colleagues, um, he had a very uh, noteworthy gait. It looked like his body and his brain were not quite synced up. And as it turned out, this person had been in a car accident and died technically 10 times before they managed to get him back. And the doctors told him he would never walk, he would never talk, and that he was going to be like that the rest of his life. And this guy, he had this incredible sparkle in his eyes and this fiery nature. And he said to the doctors, <laughs> no way I accept that. There's no way I am going to accept that as the truth. So he, in spite of the fact that all of his doctors said that there's no way you're going to walk and no way you're going to talk, he said, I will. I will walk and I will talk. So I met him, I don't know how many years after his accident, and he walked 
it was, it was an unusual gait, but he was walking and he was absolutely talking. And by the time I graduated, he was running and he was in the university, going to university and getting a college degree. And so he was effective. His, his stance, which is that I do not accept the doctor's diagnosis and their prognosis as the truth meant that he had the wherewithal in himself to retrain his brain. And that's exactly what he did. So when we think of the brain as a power grid, where it's got certain kinds of circuits, there are millions of pathways or roads that are lighting up every time you think, do, or feel something. And so habits are well-established pathways. Every time you do a particular task or think a particular thing or feel a particular emotion, we strengthen this particular pathway or road. And if we do something different or we think something different or we start to create a new pathway And so if we do something different enough, then that new pathway becomes strong and the old pathway begins to not have so much uh, reinforcement and begins to fall away. So when our minds are filled with anger and we think about the anger and we think about all the reasons why we should feel angry and we go through the list and we cycle around it, we are we are reinforcing the neurosynapses that create the pathways that make it possible to feel anger again. It makes it easier to feel angry. But when we notice that we're anger, angry, and we turn our attention towards something like joy or something that makes us laugh, or we count the number of chairs in the room, We take our focus of attention away from the one thing that is familiar and we focus it on something else and we either create pathways that support something that's neutral or pathways that support something that's positive. And so this is not different than what the Buddha teaches. The difference is only the specific application in the way that it is applied. It's the same thing. It's just the way that it ends up being applied is slightly different. So the basis of neuroplasticity is to notice what's going on. We start with an intention. Just like in planting a tree, we start with an intention, we condition the soil, we plant a sapling, we stake it so that the big winds don't uproot it, we water it, we pull out weeds, we protect from rabbits and deer, and we feed it fertilizer. And after a while, we can take out the rabbit fence, then we can take out the stake and the deer fence, and after a time, we've got sweet fruit. So this is the persimmon tree that is uh, right next door to me that I took two days ago. Beautiful, incredible fruit, but it didn't always look like that. You know, when it first started, it was a little tiny sapling. And I remember when I was living at Chithurst and we had a chestnut coppice forest and Mike Holmes wanted to take out the coppice forest and plant it with native species. He had a bunch of volunteers in the forest and a whole bunch of saplings and at the end he was 
so grumpy. It was so incredible because half of the people didn't know the right side up and the right side down from the tree and they planted the trees the wrong way up. (laughs) Which is what happens when you live in a monastery and everything is done by volunteer labor that you get the most remarkable things happening that you would never imagine. (laughs) so we start by noticing what's going on we pause an unhelpful pattern we remember the reason why neuroplasticity is important we turn towards our aspiration we focus on past healthy things or memories and we imagine in the future something that's being healthy and then we experience the joy of doing that. So this in a synopsis is the basis of the neuroplasticity program that I'm in. And what it does is it helps us work Every time our system is going into either symptoms or habits that are not helpful. And when our health is impacted after a certain point, something that moves in and out of an internal reflection and an external engagement is incredibly useful because the capacity for sustained attention and focus is impacted with certain kinds of health issues. And so this is the reason why, in some situations, the overlap between neuroplasticity and meditation is a phenomenally rich and opportune uh, combination. So the similarities between these is that in both our Buddhist practice and in neuroplasticity practice, they both place a big perspective on seeing things in perspective. So the view, in the neuroplasticity, the view is is that our habits are created by neuropathways. And when our certain parts of our brain, like our limbic system, get jammed into a stress response, then it continues to perpetuate a stress response even when there is no danger that is present. And so when we understand that, then we can have a frame of reference that makes sense out of fear or anxiety or depression or some symptoms that don't make sense because there isn't a reason for us to experience them. So when we have the view well established, we can use that to direct our attention. And that attention then relies on mindfulness. And the mindfulness helps us notice what's going on. And this both understands the, the, the importance of repeated effort to pause, to turn towards enhancing what is helpful, and towards um, celebrating or appreciating the good efforts that one has done. It is enhancing loving kindness and joy and gratitude. And it is letting go of the things that no longer serve us. And so even though we can 
we have plenty of reasons for feeling righteous about some of the anger that we experience, it, it is not often the case that it serves us well. And so when we can turn that and transform that into something that is a wholesome, positive, engaged action, that is different. And when it starts impacting our bodies where we're not sleeping well, where our health is feeling uh, a certain kind of impact, then we know that we actually need to be proactive in our engagement. So the similarities between neuroplasticity and between our Buddhist practice is intention and mindfulness, effort, the the positive qualities of the heart, and the encouragement to let go of what doesn't serve. And I thought that I would also to bring forward some of the differences. So one of the things which is different is that in the meditative path, You know, like I have been on retreats where we are silent for very long times. I'm sure many people here have been on silent retreats where in a course of 10 days, you maybe have a couple of interviews with people or there's a couple of question and answer sessions with people. But there's a a reliance on silence as the as the method or the or the place from which inquiry is happening. And in neuroplasticity, there's much less reliance on silence. In, the, in our meditative practice, we are encouraged to drop our stories, to let them go. And in neuroplasticity, we are encouraged to remember our positive memories and to envision our positive imaginations of what might happen as a way of letting our body get reacquainted with what it feels like to be healthy. So even if we are remembering something in the past or if we are envisioning something in the future, our body cannot tell the difference between past and future. So if we are flooding ourselves with joy about something that happened or we are imagining something that brings us the feeling of ease and well-being and filling up with love, Our brain has no capacity to differentiate between past, present, and future in terms of the neural pathways that are established. So this uses story in order to evoke the positive mind states that we want to enhance so that we get more acquainted with them. They become more familiar to us. Now, particularly living as a monastic where there's a lot of renunciation, there's all kinds of pulling back away from certain kinds of pleasures and we're not encouraged to use uh, television or to sing or to dance. And even there's, in, there's, there's descriptions of, of where we can laugh or how much laughter and where that is suitable and where it's not suitable. Because, and the reason for that is is so that our energy is not flowing out, so that our energy is directed inward. But in neuroplasticity, we are wanting to make use of skillful distractions. We're wanting to make use of positive experience with senses. We are wanting to make use of laughter, so that our systems are flooded with the, with the chemistry that has us feel 
healthy and well because our bodies have forgotten how to do that. So it's like we need to reteach ourselves how to feel joy, how to feel happy. And then the last one is the relationship with dukkha. So, you know, one of the things that happens on retreat often is that people feel that we become like dukkha sniffers. Like, you know, like in an airport, you've got little beagles that sniff out the drugs. Well, when you come on a retreat, you become a dukkha sniffer, where you're just focusing on the dukkha, and you're just, anytime there's a dukkha, you just go right to it. Anytime there's pain or stress or anything that's unsatisfactory, our system scans for it, looks for it, and focuses on it and dives into it. And it gets to be to the point where people feel that if we're not suffering, we're not practicing right. And, and you can see it on people's faces, you know, like this, this long drawn face of we are meditators and we're here to practice and it's very serious. And we don't smile because that is a sensory indulgence. You know, it's common on a retreat that there's this intensity with dukkha as the focus. And in neuroplasticity, we notice it enough to pause our attention and redirect it towards something else. So the relationship is totally different. Because in neuroplasticity, we're wanting to emphasize things that are positive rather than emphasize what is painful and stressful. And it's really interesting to notice, like for example, in the neuroplasticity community, that we have this whole culture around not talking about our symptoms. We don't even refer to them or mention them. So it's often the case when you say hello to somebody, they give you a long laundry list about, you know, this is hurting and that's hurting and I went to the doctor and it's a little bit hurting and oh my goodness. And, you know, there's a whole laundry list that who and what I am is the sum total of my pains and illnesses and diagnoses and symptoms. But when we identify with that, is that is who we are, it makes it harder to shift out of that And when part of the reason why some of the illnesses that we have are there, not all, but some, are because of a maladaptive limbic response, then the more we are identified with our illnesses, the more we are creating that patterns that reinforce the habit that support them staying in place. And so when we shift that, and recognize that that is not the truth of who we are or what we are, that we are actually a lot bigger than that. Then we are opening ourselves up to the, to the miracle of what can happen when we let go of identifying with who we are. So the supports is to identify what it is that we're experiencing, to pause our unskillful habits, to do regular and consistent practice, to enhance positive mind states, to recognize how important it is to have friends and to recognize that 
our brains have these mirror neurons where what we see around us impacts us very directly. And then to understand that practice of what is imminent and what is timeless and what is ever-present. So I want to pause here and open it up for questions and comments. And then when we're finished with that, I want to take you in another guided meditation that brings forward this last aspect of what is pervasive and timeless and ever-present. So, questions, comments? Raise your hands, please, and we'll have a mic runner. There's a question in the back. Is um, Dookie and Duca one and the same? <laughs> Dookie? That's new on me. I don't know Dookie. What is dukkha then? Dukkha is suffering. Dukkha is a Pali word for the description of stress. And it is often translated as suffering, but it's actually, a, um, it's not really comprehensive enough. Dukkha is the, is the whole spectrum of what is unsatisfactory that includes the unsatisfactoriness of pain. It includes the unsatisfactoriness that pleasant things change. It includes the unsatisfactoriness of a conditioned existence. It's a very, very big and comprehensive term. Question here? Thank you. Um, I'm wondering about the protocol and neuroplasticity, what it looks like. Is it, you know, with a talk therapist, feedback, you know, what's the actual? So the dynamic neural retraining system, if you're interested, I would encourage you to go to the website. It's called Retrain the Brain. And it has uh, testimonials and things on it, and there's more information about it. And Annie Hopper, I mean, her particular story is actually quite amazing because it's, it's, there are many people who have di- similar but different stories. I can't remember all of the things that were going on for her. I think she had um, um, multiple chemical sensitivity and light sensitivity. And and then what happened was she uh, she developed um, sensitivity to electricity, and when she developed sensitivity to electricity, she had to move out of her home because she was allergic to the electricity in her home, and so she was living on a houseboat for a while. And at some point, she realized, you know, the that's got to be in my brain. It, it this has got to be in my brain. It can't be an out there thing. And so she put together a combination of four or five different kinds of therapies. And it, there's a, 
a, a protocol that you go through with several different steps that helps you go through these different stages of setting your intention, remembering the view, understanding the value of neuroplasticity, cre- uh, looking at your aspiration, going into a past memory, thinking about a future visualization, and moving in and out of the wise perspective of just bringing an engaged kind of loving kindness to yourself as you're doing this. Hi. Um, Interestingly, uh, last time I was here with you a few months ago, I um, asked if you had met um, an uh, awakened people or anyone. And you mentioned a couple that you had met that you considered awakened or enlightened. I'm not sure um, the difference there. Um, With your more recent involvement in uh, neuroplasticity, it sounds like you've outlined a uh, path towards that. I wonder if things have changed and there may be more uh, awakened people out there. Well, the thing that I love about neuroplasticity is that it's very engaging and um, it, it, it's not, um, it doesn't have any particular language of a particular faith or tradition. And so it can be uh, people from all kinds of different walks of life can engage with it. But what I also love about it is that it neuroplasticity? So, for the Buddhist nerds in the group here, Paticca Samapada is the language that is referring to dependent origination, and it's the cycle of ignorance conditioning our habits, which then sets up our body to perceive the world according to the habits that we have. Okay. And the 12 links is an intimate description of the way this works. Neuroplasticity is a little bit like engaged dependent origination, engaged patichu samapada. It's a way of jumping into that cycle and beginning to rework it so that we end up with a more positive result. And because it's coming from an applied uh, perspective rather than... uh, um, it has uses and applications in ways that for a lot of people, when they put their minds to dependent origination, their brains turn into a pretzel because the philosophy of around it is dense and it's hard to understand. But in the same way, when, when uh, Sharon Beckman Brindley and I were teaching an insight dialogue retreat on this theme, we did it relationally so people understood it from the experience of being in relationship and in their bodies. And so, and there was a lot of good results that came from that experiment. So, my enthusiasm when we have this overlap between Um, Buddha's teachings and neuroplasticity is that we're making what's happening is that there's a skill level that is a broader base to a larger number of people or to a to a different sect of subsect of people and I think that they're having good results but the other thing that's really exciting is that they are 
you know, my friends in this community have been dealing with a tremendous amount of illness. And it's supportive of people who are dealing with anxiety and PTSD and have uh, chemical sensitivity and electromagnetic sensitivity and chronic Lyme disease and fibromyalgia and chronic unspecified pain. So people who are hurting and their lives have been completely mm, changed by the physical components of what they're navigating have tools that the medical establishment haven't been able to give them to have more agency and choice and capacity to get well. And that, to me, is exciting. And I think also with the level of stress that we're navigating in our worlds right now, where our systems are clamping into um, stress responses, where it's becoming habits, then the wiser we are collectively about this, then the more we're going to be able to support ourselves, each other, and our communities as we're navigating these, these places of stress. In the back... I was wondering if it was actually simple to, or similar to the um, 12-step programs that they have for um, things like rehabilitation from narcotics or alcohol or something like that, since they both kind of deal with rehabilitation of triggers and environments and reappraisal of situations. Um. You know, I don't have the 12 steps in my head to memorize them, to be able to, in, in just by that, be able to do a, a cross-comparison and analysis to be able to answer your question. So I can't answer that, I'm afraid. No problem. Yeah. In the back. And then you're next. Thank you. Um, I was curious if you could talk a bit about the concept of, or how does it approach, like, not suppressing the stress or not coming to understand it? Because I think it sounds great. It's like, great, I'm excited. I can just direct my attention elsewhere. But does it come to a place where it's full healing for whatever the stressful event might be, unless it's just ignorance? But if maybe there's something deeper that I can learn from and understand, I, I, I think I missed if how it approaches suppressing negative emotions. So that's a really important question. And I think in the neuroplasticity community, we've got a bunch of people whose, whose brains have limbic injuries and they're trying to get to a place where there's a little bit more sense of normalcy. And so it's a specific applied application of moving away from dukkha that's time-bound. And so the kind of idea is, is that as long as we are experiencing these kinds of symptoms that are directly the result of limbic injury, then in this particular time-bound circumstance, it's helpful to turn away from the stress and the pain and the difficulty as much as possible. And then once we are symptom-free, then we have, uh, we have encouragement or agency to look at these things with more depth. Now, in a situation like me, where I'm a meditation teacher and a mentor, 
and I'm showing up for other people and being available for them, my capacity to uh, limit my contact is not going to be the same as somebody who's in a different circumstance. Yeah. Okay. There was a question up here. Um, I wanted to touch on the idea of the skillful distraction a little bit more, kind of to piggyback off of what he was saying. Um, Because um, in the work that I do, we do a lot of talk about pick a better story, tell a better story about what's happening. And um, from what I've understood that you're saying, sometimes it's better to just bypass the story for a minute, table it, and then come up with something else. Um, how do you resist the urge to not want to tell a better story about what's happening and therefore kind of re-engage with the energy of whatever it is that you're trying to bypass to begin with? Because it, it makes more sense to the rational, linear brain to say, okay, well, I can't, I can't be repeating the same thing, but I can talk about what I'm living in a different way. But that's still re-engaging. So, so when we do that in a way that that associates something negative with something positive, it's hugely helpful. Hugely helpful. So when we take a habit that has often negative connotations and then we have some kind of an association that transforms or changes or then connects with it something positive, then we are changing our association to that. So let me give you an example. Um... Uh, if we've got multiple chemical sensitivity and perfume uh, triggers, and we somebody comes in and is wearing a gallon of perfume, and we're triggered, we can say, oh, that smells like the flowers in Hawaii, where I loved and I had such a wonderful time, and I felt at ease and peaceful and comfortable. So that the association is with the smell, but it takes the attention away to an association that was positive rather than an association that's negative. And you still buy the story. What story? We're not completely bypassing what's happening. No, so that's... So you're you're, you're engaging... You're engaging in the story, but redirecting the attention to associate it with something that's positive. But what's also possible is, you know, there can be a a trigger with smells or lights or whatever the trigger is, and you redirect your attention to something that's completely different. You count chairs. You count the number of orange T-shirts and orange things that there are. You count backwards by threes from a hundred you know, just take your mind off of something or you have a you have a library of videos that make you laugh, you know, or uh, you just do something that makes you laugh, you know. So that kind of thing where we take our attention away from the trigger and laugh is brilliant because the laughter in our systems calms down our nervous system and the anxiety does not coexist with laughter. So that fight, flight, freeze response, which gets activated when we're triggered, is dismantled when we're laughing. So one of the skillful distractions that this uses is laughter yoga, where you deliberately get together with a group of people and laugh, you know? And when your systems are laughing, it's a different experience. It's just a different experience. 
Um, so is there a way to find a balance for a generally healthy person who um, is, you know, sensitive to the just horrors of the world and when trying to be aware of things, to make decisions to not continue um, to perpetuate those horrible things, but also not, you know, just shifting always to, you know, watch videos about cats or something instead of being aware of, you know, what's going on in the political world. So how do we find the balance there? Okay, brilliant question. And I'm imagining that this is a relevant question for many people here, yeah? Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so we need to learn the discernment of when our systems are going into habitual stress responses and when they're not. When we're not sleeping, when we're feeling anxious, when we wake up in the morning and we feel like we're going to die at any moment. You know, when we've got this like black doomsday thing that's on our, that there's this weight on our system. When we're experiencing things like that, then we need to have red flags going, this is a stress response, and that we need to actually be proactive in being very selective about what we pay attention to until our systems start to decompress a little bit. Okay? So it it doesn't have to be pathological, but we can go into, like, you know, a week of not sleeping or a week of just being obsessed with the horrors of what we have heard on social media or that's going on in the world or that has just been happening in the political world and it can really weigh heavy on us and so there needs to be both internal discernment and I think what needs to start happening is collectively we need to start watching out when we're noticing each other being in a stress response as where we're saying okay it's time for cats. (laughs) You know, time out on Facebook, cats. You know, warm, fuzzy, friendly things for you for the next two days. Don't look at the news. You know, because what, what I'm observing is the sign of a stress response. Is, is a habitual pattern of stress that keeps reenacting itself. And then the nature of that, which is exactly what the dependent origination cycle describes, is that when that gets ingrained, then the body is primed, the sense apparatus is primed to look out for things that will reinforce what it's already feeling. And there is plenty out there to reinforce whatever you're stressed out about. So that needs a redirect until the nervous system can calm down and then we have discernment about what kind of is a wise response and action that's needed here. And that's one of the reasons why I think this is particularly an important topic in our contemporary world is to understand how we need to develop the discernment about when we're focusing in on the dukkha and when we are not. Yeah. Two more questions and then I want to do guided meditation with you all, okay? Hello. Um, It seems dangerous to switch off anger 
because it's not really going to go away and our bodies don't lie. And um, if we listen to it fully and experience it, then we can get wisdom from it. And it's actually all of our emotions are there for a reason. And some of them might be uncomfortable. Some of them might be inconvenient. Some of them might be uh, scary. But all of our emotions are, are valid. So maybe it's maybe it would go like this. Wow, I'm feeling really angry. Hmm. There I am, feeling angry. What's that about? Hmm, yeah. That's what that's about. Okay. And then maybe there I might somehow, after experiencing it fully, set it free by by maybe doing something different or or maybe allowing the grief that's under it. Because sometimes there's grief. But sometimes it's there for a reason. Maybe somebody, maybe it is really stressful out there and maybe that's real and maybe we need to look at that and feel that and not, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to transcend my anger but it doesn't actually work <laughs> until I feel it, you know, until I acknowledge it and experience it and then get the wisdom from it. So beautiful, beautiful, beautiful share. Thank you so much. This is what the neuroplasticity program for is for people who are navigating limbic impairment. Okay, when there's that capacity to reflect and to know and to understand and to have insight in that kind of framework, then my sense is is that you're not navigating limbic impairment. Okay, but one of the symptoms of limbic impairment is chronic rage. Okay. And so if that is what's going on for people, that they're in chronic rage, all right, then we're in a different ballgame. It's not somebody who has the ability to reflect and to make those kinds of inquiries and have it shift in that kind of short period of time. Well, maybe, maybe there really is something to be chronically enraged about. Okay, so <laughs> y- yes... And when it becomes something where our, our body is being impacted so that we don't have choice anymore about where we place our attention, then, then you, there is a yes and. The more we have the ability to come back into choice, the more we're going to be able to be skillful in the way that we respond to what's going on. I think it could negatively affect the body if if we suppress it. So this is not a suppression. That's not the intention. Redirection is not suppression. And that's where the wisdom is coming from and that wisdom is recognizing because there are plenty of times when we feel things that are very uncomfortable and we need to just be with it because it's uncomfortable. But when this is operating in a way which is healthy, there's the recognition that it's actually not helpful for me to pay attention to this right now for whatever reason. And based on that discernment, there's the redirect. And so when people are completely healthy, then you're right. It is wise to question when you redirect away from anger without having any interest to know what's going on and where it's coming from and why you're feeling that and what's it about. That's rise. When your brain is limbically impaired, it is different feeling. And so if you haven't experienced that, then it's hard to know what that might be like. There was one more question in the back, and then I want to do guided meditation. Thank you. 
Important. Very important. Hi. This might be a a little bit easier context to address the similar thing that you were just talking about. I'm not sure if what you're saying applies to people without, and I think it does, without limbic injury, because neuroplasticity does not require limbic injury. So here's my situation, and I'm trying to think about how to apply what you've just taught us, and I'm hoping for maybe a little guidance with it. So... um, Two nights ago, I got really clear on what was important. And the next morning, I'm going to wake up and I have these priorities of things that are really important. And I'm going to spend my time and energy on these things because they're the most important things because I've sat and I've got really clear on what's important, what are my priorities. And then I wake up and I get an email from someone. And it's usually someone that needs, that's struggling with something and needs help or something. But it doesn't always have to be that. Um, And then it becomes this can of worms thing where this thing leads to that thing. And you know, you're looking for something on the internet, but then that takes you to this and that takes you to that. And next thing I know, like two hours have gone by and I know in my mind that I have more important things to do. And I know in my mind that I've already probably done enough for this person, but I can't quite let go of this. You know, and then it goes and it goes and it goes, you know, and so, and I've been working with how do I break that, you know, and it feels like, I've lost, or I still have some discernment. I know that I'm not making a skillful choice right now with my time and my energy, but I can't seem to break that somehow. So I'm guessing what you're saying is in those moments, that's the point at which I would apply a distraction or something to take, something to get my, that's right. to trick myself out of that's exactly what I right. can't let go of. So part of what we need to do is we need to learn our habits and the kinds of things that happen for us. And so for you, you know, you get clear and then something happens and there's a kind of, I don't know what you would call it, whether it's an engagement with somebody else's process that takes you away from your own. Yeah? And so that then becomes something that you learn to recognize. And so when that happens, you pause yourself and you go through a process that redirects your energy in through this whole way and so that practice of pausing these habits is part of what we need to learn how to do. And that's true whether we're doing it from a meditative perspective or we're doing it from a neuroplasticity perspective. We need to become familiar with our habits and pause them. And so what, what specifically might that look like in this situation if I were to pause that? To say, I am over-invested in somebody else. This is a habit. And then to redirect yourself to your intention, your aspiration, your clarity, and to allow yourself to be filled with joy and to do something that re-energizes yourself and, 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 and puts you back into the place where your system feels grounded and well. Thank you. Yes. So I want to close with a little guided meditation. So please find a way that feels at ease. And for those people who are live streaming, for you as well. And just like we had culture of taking off our shoes, I see most everyone's got shoes that are off. Yeah? So that's the culture. Now let's imagine that we have a developed more culture 
And before you're allowed in the room, you're invited to leave your habits. You're invited to leave your past. You're invited to leave your future. You're invited to leave your complaints. You're invited to leave the things that you identify with. You're invited to leave all of the hopes and the dreams of what the future might look like. Now come in, please. Come into this beautiful, powerful, sacred space. You are welcome. Come in. And sitting here, just present, aware, attentive, cognizant, Awake. What does it feel like to be present? And does this presence that we feel have a beginning? Is it located in our body? Is it limited to this room? Does it end?
if we have a thought, is presence obliterated? If we have a feeling, does presence dissolve? Just being present in awareness itself with presence. That's all. In this moment, There isn't anything to do. There isn't anything to get rid of. There isn't anything to strive towards. There is just presence. Now I'm going to ring the bell and when I do just see if it's possible just to notice the presence even in the sound and as you change posture and get up and walk out stay with the presence in the changing posture in the walking. These meditations are not the only kind of meditation. But when we know that we can drop in and touch this, Rest here, no matter where we are, no matter what is going on. It's a big 
big support. Thank you very much for coming tonight. It's a pleasure to spend this evening together, really. And thank you for all of you on the live stream. I'm glad you could make it too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.